A man in Phoenix was charged with arson after fire destroyed his home in 2009. Prosecutors argued that he had lost his fortune, he was in great debt, and that he had burned his house in order to collect insurance. The extended trial finally came to a climax as the jury was about to read their verdict. At the very moment that the defendant heard the word guilty, witnesses said that he popped something into his mouth. And with the courtroom full, his family right there, began to convulse just moments later, was writhing on the floor, and within minutes, right there in the courtroom, he had died. Imagine his family at that moment. The prospects for an acquittal were never very great, but there's always hope for the future. They had their dad, had the wife had her husband who could at least lead them forward. They had a lot of problems entering into that courtroom, but they faced the greatest problem as they left, having to deal with his death. Death is a great enemy. It's an enemy that spreads sorrow and loss and hopelessness all around the world. Nothing else that exposes our human weakness the way death does. Uh, Even when death is delayed, even if it's not imminent for uh, some individuals or, or some families, just the fear of its approach is, uh, is a terrible experience. Death, though, doesn't have to be the end of life's story. In John 11, and, and, and really it's throughout this whole chapter, we're just going to take one slice of this chapter. Uh, John often writes in chapters that would be very challenging to cover the whole thing in one message. We're going to go right to the heart of this, as this passage today uh, records an encounter with death, real people, a real family, and they've experienced a real death just days before this event unfolds. This passage also points to the one person who can help. That person is Jesus Christ. These verses today, we'll see the Lord has power over death. And with that power, acknowledging he has that power, there's a call here to come to him with confidence in his ability to meet this need with also the conclusion that if he can meet this need, 
He can meet our greatest need. He can meet every need as well. That is to give us confidence for the future, no matter what your future holds. Again, we are jumping right into the middle of a story, and verse 28 reminds us of that. It says, when she had said this, we need to know who she is, and we need to know what she said. So we just take a moment to look back a few verses. There is a woman named Martha. Her brother has just died. He's been in the tomb now for four days. They live just outside of Jerusalem in the village of Bethany. And while the family has been mourning back at their house, Christ has approached. Martha found out. She went outside the the home, outside the village to talk with him. And she's had a personal uh, encounter of instruction. She has been uh, pointed to the truth. And their conversation with Jesus ended with her, with him asking her, do you believe this? Do you believe I have power over death? And she has confessed that she does. Martha went back to their home, strengthened in her faith. In spite of the challenge they were facing, she's encouraged because Christ has met her need. She goes back now in verse 28 to inform her sister. She has a sister, Mary, who is also experiencing great grief. So she went and called her sister, Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here, and he's calling for you. The teacher. Why did she call him the teacher? Of all the names for Christ that would be appropriate. This is certainly appropriate, but why this one? I think it may be because she's just been taught. She just experienced his ability to communicate truth that makes a difference. Christ apparently wanted to have a similar private conversation with Mary. So he has commissioned Martha to ask her to come out where they can talk for a bit. And what we have then in this invitation, the teacher is calling for you. We have an invitation to receive the help that Christ offers. Christ offers his help. It's a personal invitation that help is going to come in the form of the gospel. Mary, though she's already a believer, she needs to know the truth about the gospel. All biblical truth is related to the gospel itself. And she needs some help with this. Maybe not new truth for her, but she needs an encounter with truth, and Christ is ready to do that. He can meet her need on this occasion, but let's bring this up to today. He can do the same thing for you. You might not be grieving the loss of a loved one, but you may. 
You may be facing some other uncertainty in life. Christ can help with that as well. And he's given the invitation to come. Let him help. That requires then a response. Uh, He offers, but you must come to him. Mary sets the example for her. She does exactly that. When she had heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. She didn't look at her schedule to see when she could fit this in. She rose immediately and went to him. When Christ calls, that's the time to go to him. But you must come. Mary clearly is eager. Eager for what? Eager for the grace that only he can provide. There is no substitute for coming to Jesus. And as the ensemble sang just a few moments ago, you have to come just as you are. And that means acknowledging, I've got nothing. I'm not handling this. I need you. So Christ offers his help. The next few verses, let us know, reminds us once again that during his earthly ministry, during his years on this earth, Christ experienced personally what life is like here. The man who has died, Lazarus, he was a friend of Jesus as well. And uh, and he senses the need here. Uh, verse 30, Jesus had not yet come into the village. Have, your, have that place in mind. It's just on a, on a, on a roadside, out, just outside of this town. Uh, so he was still where Mar- Martha had left him, waiting for Mary to come. But it's not just Mary who comes. Verse 31, when the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, when they saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. So this private conversation is not going to work out on this occasion uh, because there are others that are involved now. But those others have not been very effective so far. Uh, They've been with her for days. She's still grieving. Human comfort is always deficient. There's only so much a person, a human being, a mere human being can do. And so in this case, it almost seems uh, that genuine help from Christ is about to get crowded out by all these mourners. Uh, All they can do is share the grief. They can't take it. Verse 32 then sets the scene. When Mary came to where Jesus was, and we know this crowd of people following right behind When she came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now, is that true? Has Mary got a grasp on reality here? 
Well, Martha has said the same thing to Jesus in the previous passage. If you had been here, my brother would not have died. What makes them say that? Well, they've seen Jesus heal sick people before. They've seen him heal a blind man, to heal a lame man. Whatever sickness caused this early death of their brother Lazarus, he could have healed him too. You see, this is the voice of faith. You could have changed this circumstance. But realize as well, this faith that represents us, this is typical. This is us. You could have done something. But we add in. Now it's too late. Nothing you can do now. Not even you. What's that reflect? That reflects a limitation on God himself. It's like, wow, you can do a lot of things, but this enemy, this is too great. Now everything is hopeless. Mary represents this reality of where she is at in her relationship with Christ, her perception of who he is and what he can do. She represents that by her posture. She has just collapsed at his feet. And she is sobbing sobs of despair. If only you had come sooner. Hope for change when death has occurred. Death just seems too powerful. Death just seems too final. This kind of experience with death is all around us as well. So much news of tragedies happening to people seem to take place somewhere else across the country. But we all remember last spring when a man by the name of Eric Hutchinson and his bride had just finished their wedding ceremony. That ceremony, uh, that event took place at the beach. So they had gotten into a golf cart with two of their friends uh, heading on to the the follow-up event, uh, their reception, and suddenly their golf cart was struck from behind by an intoxicated driver going twice the speed limit, had no idea what was going on. And Eric suffered a serious injury. He had a brain injury. He had multiple broken bones. But under medical care, they told him, it looks like you're going to recover. You're going to survive this. But his wife of just a few hours earlier She would have been killed. How do people grapple with that kind of a sudden, tragic experience of death? Well, we don't know. We don't know how he has responded. We don't know how her family has responded. 
Uh, are, they, are they making it? Are, are, they, are they coping? Has that man come to Christ for help? We can't answer for other people. But it's a reminder that there is an invitation to you to come to Christ and get the help that you need. The question for you is, will you respond to that opportunity? Let him meet your need. Well, so far in this passage, Jesus hasn't made any difference. He's not even getting the opportunity of a private conversation with Mary that he desired. So what can he do to help? Well, the passage goes on, and there's a, there's a dramatic turn here in verses 33 to 37, where the Lord, having seen the effect of death on people, on, even on his people, In these verses, the Lord takes the defeat of death on himself. To take the defeat of death, the the conquest of death on himself. What's that mean? It means he is determined to experience death personally in order to conquer death for us. We dare not assume that that was an easy decision for him to make. In fact, this passage gives us some remarkable insight into what that decision meant for Christ personally. So let's go back to verse 33 now, which tells us that Jesus is very aware of the impact of death on these people that he loves When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping. Now, the word that John uses here to represent weeping means the the full sobbing. This is is mourning. This is audible. This is visual. Uh, To have Mary fall at his feet, and, and she's just heaving sobs of grief. Friends that have followed her from the house are all doing the same thing. This is a commotion. The commotion has just been transferred from the home now to the open air, and no doubt they're attracting a lot of attention. That becomes an important point of contrast in just a few verses. But let's continue in verse 33 because the rest of this verse has some things that on the surface are very disturbing for us. Reality about the person of Jesus Christ. Look what it says about him. When he saw all of this weeping going on, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Deeply moved, okay, that's not so hard to understand, except that the English translation there leaves out some, an important element of that. But deeply moved, okay, he really cares about this. Yes, he does. And troubled? 
He's troubled? In what way? What's he troubled about? Okay, now we need to know. So let's first look at that, uh, at that phrase that he was deeply moved in his spirit. That's the, pretty much the standard English translation. All the versions leave it in a very general description of an emotional response. And that's really puzzling because there, there is no uh, uh, textual justification. There is no, there's no reason why they needed to leave that translation quite so generic. Deeply moved. In what way? Well, we know what way he was moved. The word itself means to be moved with anger, with indignation. This is an outrage. That's what's moving Christ. Well, what's he outraged about? Well, clearly he is outraged at the effect of sin and death on people that he loves. And it's burning in his heart right now. This same, uh, uh, same word occurs in other instances, and at the heart of it is always this idea of anger. He's angry at what he sees happening right now. He's not angry at the people. He's angry at the cause. And he's rising in this indignation. And then the next word follows this up. The next word is that he was greatly troubled. Now that same word occurs two other times in John's gospel in the next two chapters. I'm going to read these to you. It's John 12, 27, which here is Christ talking and he says, now is my soul troubled. What's he troubled about? Amazingly, he's troubled about his own death. He's troubled about the prospect of separation from God while he hangs on the cross. He says, now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? Is he so troubled that he's going to ask God to find some other way? I just can't go through with this. He says, no, that's why I came to this hour. I am not going to abandon it, even though he's troubled by the prospect. John 13, verse 21. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit. And testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. At that moment, he had Judas Iscariot in his view. Judas is going to do something that is going to affect Christ greatly. He's going to betray him. At this moment, Christ is troubled by what somebody else is going to do. That reflects, I'm going to, throw out a grammatical term to you now. You ready? You know this word. This is a passive verb. Somebody else is acting and they are affecting him. Both of these, chapter 12 and chapter 13, but 
And you see the translation comes out about the same in verse, in uh, chapter 11. He was greatly troubled. But here's the key difference. This time, John used an active form of that verb. Nobody else was doing something that troubled Christ. Christ was troubling himself. The word to trouble in this active form means he stirred himself up. He's not just going to stew in his indignation about what sin and death were doing. He was troubling himself. He was rising up to take action. I'm going to do something about that. Now, immediately our minds go to what he actually does on that occasion. What does he do? Well, it's not included in our passage today, but you know what he does. He's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. There, he did something about it. But no, Lazarus would have to die again. What Christ has in mind here isn't, I'm going to raise Lazarus. What he has in mind is, I'm going to pay for that sin. I am going to pay the cost to relieve the grief of people that I love. I'm going to go to the cross. Now, this isn't the final word on this. We see in the Garden of Gethsemane, He's still agonizing over this decision, and he ends up, of course, saying, not my will. What what would his will have been? To stop the whole process. But not my will, may your will be done. That represents the final victory of this anguish in Christ's heart. But this is clearly an important step. He rose in indignation, and he decided. He stirred himself to action. What we see then unfolding through the rest of this chapter with the, uh, with the raising of Lazarus is simply a demonstration that he has the power to do this, but in order to achieve it, he is going to have to die himself. And he's willing to do that. I will pay that price. So Christ is moved by wrath. Moved to act. Moved to die himself. So in verse 34, he asks, where have you laid him? He's still carrying this this indignation. So this isn't Christ uh, kind of joining in with the others and getting kind of weepy himself. Where have, you, where have you laid him? Like he wants to go join in the morning. No, it's where have you laid him? I like the picture Christ's jaw set at this point. I am going to uh, intervene in, the, in enemy territory. Take me to this place of death. And they say, come and see, Lord. So Christ is moved by wrath, but verse 35 tells us something else. Jesus wept. But in this verse, John 
changed words. This one isn't the word that means the sobbing and the mourning. This is a word that simply means the shedding of tears. Picture Christ not with heavy heart, but with a full heart of wrath against sin. He is marching forward to that tomb. And as he does so, people notice there are tears coming down his cheeks. And they interpret those, cheer, those tears correctly. Verse 36, the Jews said, see how he loved him. Yes, because Christ is not just motivated by rage. He's motivated by love. He loves people. Not just Lazarus, Mary, Martha. He loves people. He cares for you. He's moved by love. He has compassion. We thank the Lord he also has patience. Because verse 37 is the other side of this reality. Some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also kept this man from dying? That's an odd way to end a passage, isn't it? An open-ended question. You know, once again, where this passage closes where it began, with us, with typical faith. Faith that says, I believe he could have done something, but it's too late now. Nothing he can do. This is deficient faith. It could be saving faith. You could get saved on this faith. I believe he can, he can uh, pay for my sin. But you don't think he can meet whatever challenge you're facing right now? Uh, your faith needs help. You have room to grow. Jesus raised Lazarus in the following verses proving that physical death is only a temporary transition. With his own death, Jesus was about to pay for sin and win the final victory. Which means that facing physical death now doesn't have to be a devastating experience for anybody. Trust Christ as your personal Savior. Let him pay for your sin. And death itself loses its sting. If you've already trusted Christ as your Savior, then you can turn to him for any other need as well. But perhaps you've never actually placed your faith in him. You've never actually come to him as the choir urged this morning. Just as I am.
I don't have any good works to help. I don't have anything to offer. I have a need, and I need Christ. That takes some humility, doesn't it? It takes enough faith to believe that he paid for your sin. Come to Christ is his invitation. Don't walk out of here without knowing Christ is your Savior. We're going to turn our attention after we have prayer together. We're going to turn our attention to the Lord's table because this is the way that the Lord has designed for us to remember periodically that it all points to Christ and his decision to pay for that sin, regardless of what it cost him. I urge you now to look into your own heart. If you know Christ as your Savior, ask him to forgive you for not trusting him for everything. We have no cause to fear the future. If you've not trusted Christ as Savior, you could actually do that right now. Tell him that you're a sinner, that you've got nothing to offer, but that you need forgiveness and that you are turning from your sin. If you're unwilling at this point to do that, then we just urge that you let the, the, the trays pass by I urge that you not participate because this only has significance. And Scripture itself prohibits this for anybody who does not have the personal experience of trusting Christ as Savior. Let's bow for prayer. Father, thank you for the truth of the gospel. Thank you for a Savior willing to die. We ask, Father, for grace to trust him, to trust him for our eternal salvation, and also to trust him for our temporal needs that can sometimes loom so large before us. Father, would you bless as we continue to serve you and obey you in what you've told us to do around the Lord's table. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.